MakeReal specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode, the last in the current season, is about how the internet and the World Wide Web have revolutionised the way knowledge is produced, mediated and consumed. We focus on a group of entrepreneurs who have given us the online tools and platforms that now dominate global learning. Some of them also happen to be world-leading tech brands, Google, YouTube, and the new kid on the block, OpenAI. The episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Next Learning Conference in the Netherlands. So welcome everybody to this final episode of Great Minds on Learning of present season, season four. I'm here with my co-host Donald Clark, as usual. Uh, in a sense, this is a sequel to the episode we dropped a couple of weeks ago. So I'm afraid you're going to have to go back and bone up on that. Um, maybe we should do a previously on Great Minds on Learning bit here. Uh, the last episode, we cover the history of technology-delivered learning from the early years of the 20th century with the mechanical teaching devices of Sidney Pressey and B.F. Skinner up until the present, where we seem to hover now on the brink of a whole new era with generative AI, which you'll have heard a lot about. And we'll be digging a bit deeper into that this time. In this episode, we drill into how the web has revolutionised the way information, knowledge and learning is produced, mediated and consumed. Donald, your title for this episode, The Internet as Knowledge, seems to make a bold claim that the internet not only carries knowledge, but actually is knowledge. Would you like to justify that claim, perhaps, and give us a brief overview of what we're going to cover? Yeah, I suppose before you give an overview, there's a sort of bigger context for this, which is throughout the whole of our evolution, we didn't have the internet, obviously, so our brains have evolved for something completely different, which is an oral tradition. Uh, it was interesting when I, I, was, I was writing the book, uh, Learning Technologies, there's a history of learning technologies going way back to the very first tools we made uh, in previous species before Homo sapiens, and it was amazing the way in which little tweaks in technology suddenly change your relationship with knowledge. I'll, get, I'll give you an example of one for, before we do the summary. Yep. Uh, is when we invented fire, there's a very good book on this. You may think that's a sort of insignificant thing in terms of learning, but fire extends your waking hours into the nighttime. It creates a hearth around which people sit and share stories and increase the transfer of skills from one person to another. There are all sorts of dimensions to that one little bit of technology. Remember, fire is a technology. It's something you have to invent and actually make, you know? It's just like the internet in a way. But every little tweak in technology has changed our relationship with knowledge. I thought that was a particularly interesting one from the far past. But of course, the invention of writing was another one. It only ever happened in four places uh, in uh, Mesopotamia, Egypt, about 5,000 years ago, 3,200 BC, once in China and once in Mesoamerica. Only four times did we invent writing. But it massively changed our relationship with knowledge because we could archive it, store it, pass it on to subsequent generations. And then, of course, you have printing that amplifies it and so on. Anyway, cut to the quick. Back to your question, John. All right, okay. <laughs> answer the question. Yeah, answer the question. <laughs> uh, the, the internet came along... And it wasn't so much content that mattered. What really mattered with the internet was search. So looking at Page and Brin, the two Russian kids who came up with this, is really interesting because they gave us a relationship with knowledge that suddenly changed overnight. We had access in seconds to the huge corpus of human culture and knowledge. And then we have Chen and Hurley, who bought by Google, who come up with YouTube. Suddenly all that video content, you know, if you wanted to learn, you know those days when if something went wrong with your car or your tap, you went to YouTube and you could suddenly do things that you perhaps didn't have, have the money to buy, a, to get a plumber in or whatever. And then Jimmy Wales comes along and he completely revolutionizes our relationship, completely destroyed the paper encyclopedia industry. But remember, 
Wikipedia isn't an encyclopedia. It actually has an edit history. It's a sort of dynamic, flowing thing. So our relationship with knowledge, the very nature of knowledge changes with Wikipedia uh, and Jimmy Wales. And then I think is a really interesting later development is really strong learning experiences on the web. And uh, one is the famous one, which I really love, is Khan Academy. So uh, Salman Khan uh, was really a mathematician by background. He worked in finance, and he's, his niece had a problem with her mathematics, so he decided to put some lessons together. The interesting thing about this, it was revolutionary in the web. There was no talking head. You never saw Salman's head because he just wrote the maths. And this is true. If you're teaching maths, the head doesn't matter. The head is just noise. You don't have to see the head of the teacher to learn maths. You should be focusing on the maths. So he revolutionised maths teaching. Uh, and now, of course, there's a big figure in, I don't know if you know, in the chat GPT stuff I was talking about, uh, the relationship between Salman Khan and OpenAI, funded by Bill Gates, in fact, has led to this amazing tool, honestly, you can't actually access it. It's only in the US and selected school. But if you go into Canimago, it's got an awkward title, it's got this teaching tool that uses chat GPT technology and it is unbelievable because it, it actually is like a proper teacher. And it, and it has primary school knowledge right up to college level, you know, and you can speak to historical figures. You can speak to fictional figures. You can go back and speak to Don Quixote if you wanted to. It's an absolutely amazing thing. And then the other one is Lewis Van Am, who is, Duolingo. of course, the Duolingo guy. It's a true AI system. So that's the spread. You know, I, I'm really fascinated. When I wrote the book, I was really fascinated by the way in which the web radically altered our relationship with knowledge. It's not really about technology. It's about how we cognitively relate to knowledge. Yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, you've used up a bit of um, stuff, so we'll get through the other stuff quicker, which okay, is good because yeah, we have a yeah. time okay. issue here. So it's sometimes hard to remember what life was like before the two people we're going to talk about now created their marvellous invention, Backrub, which we know better as Google, of course, by the company name they eventually registered. Google famously started in a garage, but it had an earlier incarnation at Stanford, where both Page and Brin were PhD students. By the time they hit their 30s, they were billionaires. And both attribute some of their success, having been educated at Montessori schools. A lot of very famous um, alumni of Montessori schools from Edison onwards. But a portion of that collective drive and intelligence must have come from having very brainy parents. Larry Page was born in Michigan, father a computer science professor, mother an instructor of computer programming. The house was a mess, full of abandoned computer equipment, which the six-year-old Larry delighted in playing about with, taking apart, see how it worked, and putting it back together again. His path was set early on. You can imagine the tone of parental admonition in that household, which probably went nothing like this. Larry, will you get off that computer and stop revolutionising the way you'll, where you'll access and process knowledge worldwide? They, they probably never bothered to say that. Another root of his success, he puts down studying music. This is an interesting one, which gave him, for me as a musician, which gave him a sense of the value of time. And he talks about drumming and the difference between uh, somebody hitting a drum and doing a flam on a drum, which is where the two drumsticks hit a microsecond apart. I'm not going to demonstrate it because I'll mess up all the sound equipment. But as, as, as a musician, as a drummer, you're, you're very sensitive to that. There's really small gradations of time. And he argues that that's what made him concentrate so fiercely on getting Google to just outperform any other website and to get the, 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 the stuff delivered so fast. Bryn, his partner, was born in Moscow in the Soviet Union. Completely different. His family emigrated to the US in 79. But also, his father was a mathematics professor and his mother's now a researcher for NASA. So, again, brainy parents. Received his BSc from the Department of Computer Science in Maryland. Interned at Wolfram Research, an interesting company there. Did his master's, then PhD at Stanford, where he met Page. It was a combative relationship based on furious argument right from the start. Arguments which were nevertheless high, highly productive. Their contribution to world culture is rated as no less important than that of Gutenberg. Donald Search has been a completely dominant technology ever since, but speaking more broadly, how did Page and Bryn change our relationship with knowledge? Well, there was one thing you missed out in the biography there, which I th think is really significant. They both went to Montessori schools. I always find that interesting because Jimmy Wales also went to us like a one-room schoolhouse. His actually mother and grand, there were only four kids and his mother and grandmother were both teachers there. 
And I've, I've always found it fascinating how some of these really revolutionized, you know, the people who revolutionized their relationship with knowledge, actually their determination to solve that problem came from their very early experiences at school. Mm. So Page and Bryn actually attribute their self-directed motivation to their Montessori schooling, which was, I thought was really quite interesting. I don't know if you've ever been in a Montessori school or experience with it, but it, it's a lot of learn by doing physical apparatus and so on, the Montessori, Maria Montessori method and so on. Anyway, so that was an aside. I did I mention Montessori. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the Page and Bryn thing is interesting, again, to go back to that notion of your relationship with knowledge. So searching for something was the big revolution. It wasn't just that content was available. But I think there was more to it than that because there were also these other forms of search. Now, we've been mentioning throughout the day, for example, the notion of uh, Google Earth and Google Maps. So when you're searching for a restaurant, if you're in Venice, you're on Google Maps, if you're searching for a place to go and so on. So it, the search has expanded out of text into all other media. And of course, they then bought the next subject that we'll talk about. They then bought uh, YouTube, which meant they were masters of the video universe. So suddenly the internet gave us some, a different relationship with knowledge because it was multimedia, multimodal knowledge. And that's what made it so powerful as an entity. And of course, I use Google Docs. I've written four books on Google Docs. So it's not only useful access to knowledge, it's access to tools that create knowledge. Mm. And I think people underestimate the influence of Google and Page and Brin on this. When you map out the relationship with knowledge building and knowledge access, the breadth of multimedia forms of knowledge, this becomes this amazing leap forward. Yeah. And we've we, also we, we, mentioned things like maybe Google Maps. You know, I'm here because of Google Maps. Yeah. It got me here eventually. Yeah. yeah, and that is using kind of data that is out there, really, isn't it? I think that's right. The, another thing they did, which I think has been a, of great service to us as a species is, and often underestimated, is the digitization of great books. So many of the books, I don't know if you've had this experience, you're searching for something, and it comes up with just a page of a book with something highlighted in Google. And because I do a lot of research... It's, it's superbly satisfying that out-of-print books have been captured and digitised by Google for free. It was one of the, you know, it was actually a really philanthropic thing. Didn't, didn't make any money out of it. But I think that, I think it's great because a lot of that may have been lost if we hadn't digitised those books. You know, locking them up in warehouses <laughs> isn't a very sensible. A library is a really weird thing, isn't it? You know, storing books physically. They are like big warehouses now. That word library is really of interest to me. In my local library in Brighton, I had to go in recently to get a form filled or something, and there was not... I looked around, I walked around, there was not one person with a book in the library. They all had laptops. Loads of students with laptops. You know, there were young families just keeping warm in the cafe. It had nothing to do with books all of a sudden. And actually, I was in, in Melbourne, and they have this amazing university library, and I took a picture from above from the balcony. Not a single book... On any table. Isn't that astonishing that suddenly we went from the flip from analogue to digital in a generation? Yeah. And the hot yeah. desk space space is now really. Yeah. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, and I went to a university uh, library recently and there were no books on the ground floor. You had to go up the first, second floor to actually see any of the books. Yeah. I know a, a historian at a university, uh, sorry, a librarian at a university library, and she says that her job is basically eliminating metres of books on shelves yeah. every year. So what she does is get rid of books on shelves. And I think one last thing on, the, on Page and Brin that's really important is the, the self-publishing thing. So I've been blogging for since 2005. Just like I've, I've actually forgotten most of the stuff I've written because I'm, I'm a consistent blogger. But it, they revolutionised the self-publishing thing as well. You know, the idea that you could just go on there, write stuff, and other people would read and comment on it. And it's not really social media blogging. It's just a bit of social media. But Blogger was a, a great look for, leap forward. And Google Translate. Not only do we, all this, you know, Google Translate suddenly became really, really super good when they started using neural network software. It took a big leap, but that was them. Remember, these are AI kids. They know what they're doing. And even now with ChatGTP, even though that's OpenAI, Google are still, Google invented large language models. You may think it's OpenAI. No, it actually happened at Google. And uh, the, the great hero of the day there is a guy called Jeffrey Hinton, who we covered in a previous podcast. Yep. He actually works for Google. So, you know, they've got some of the greatest AI minds on the planet working for them. So you may think that all these open AI people are masters of the universe. Wait on Google catching up. They'll take their time. 
the reason they're not the reason they're delaying slightly is they don't want to ruin their massive advertising you know market by putting out a product that doesn't work so they they tried with bard it didn't quite work but they'll come they'll be a significant player in all this all right we'll be coming to ai a yeah. bit earlier on So, our next pair, Chad Hurley, born 1977, and Steve Chen, born 1978. Now we come to the second biggest search engine on the planet, YouTube, the brainchild of Chad Hurley and Steve Chen. And this was a marriage of minds that happened not at Stanford or any other prestigious educational institution that they both dropped out of, but at PayPal. Chad Hurley was born in Pennsylvania and bucks the trend in having early arty interests. His BA was in fine art, before maths or anything else, before coming to technology in high school. He is an investor at Leeds United, showing that tech bros don't necessarily lack pity for hopeless causes. That's a kind of gratuitous <laughs> football. We're both Brighton sports, of course. Steve Chen was born in Taiwan, and his family moved to Illinois when he was seven. Studied computer science at the University of Illinois. Chen was an employee at PayPal, where he first met Chad Hurley in Yawed Karim, the other co-founder of YouTube, that doesn't kind of figure in all the double photos. Though he did spend several months at Facebook, did Steve Chen. In 2006, Chen and Hurley sold YouTube to Google. It's been sold for quite a while, really, to Google, for $1.65 billion, creating a formidable configuration of search and video sharing platform. I think it's probably true to say these are now the two most important resources in global learning. I, I, I don't say that lightly, but searching for stuff... And finding how to do stuff on YouTube uh, is fills up a lot of what people, younger people say in surveys is, is their learning now. We've done over the 20 of these podcasts, Donald, and uh, they, along with this one, will all be on YouTube. Podcast is a new genre. YouTube has very recently adjusted its services for creators like me to acknowledge the huge number of podcasts that it carries. But it strikes me that YouTube has created several different genres of learning video. Um, would you like to talk about that, Donald? Yeah, sure. Again, let's go back to this rather boring phrase I keep using. This is a relationship with knowledge. So suddenly you have video, unlike just text. And the immediate impact of YouTube was quite interesting. In the pre-YouTube world, which is most of my life, <laughs> we had television programs and movies. And television programs were one hour long or half an hour. And interestingly, they're only an hour and a half an hour because the Sumerians had a base 60 number system. The reason we have one hour is because the Sumerians had a base 60 number system. That's the only reason you have a university lecture is one hour, because of the Sumerians. It's nothing to do with the psychology of learning. YouTube comes along, and suddenly we're watching loads of short stuff all of a sudden. So, you know, our cognitive relationship with video changed dramatically and overnight. So it made it shorter. But John's question was, did it create new genres? I think that YouTube is a learning platform, really, fundamentally. It has an entertainment function, but mostly when I'm on YouTube, I'm there to find something out. You know, I'm looking at podcasts and what, you know, Joe Rogan or something, you know, or I'm looking, I might be watching the football from the day before or whatever, but by and large, I'm increasingly finding myself finding useful people to listen to. So, it's, and I, of course, I think YouTube is really, you know, for people like Callum, he doesn't watch television. <laughs> he does not watch television, but he watches a hell of a lot of YouTube. Uh, and that's been a big shift in my lifetime because I'm the very opposite. I still cannot get out of the habit of watching the news on the television. And neither of my sons ever watch the news on the television because it's all on demand. So you get time shift, you get shorter videos, and then you also get these weird subgenres like memes, like podcasts. I mean, podcasts, where did that come from? You know, we all work in the learning world and uh, we all think everything should be multimedia, full of multiple choice questions and so on. And yet half the world is actually learning through podcasts and yet we don't use them in learning. I find that absolutely unbelievable. Why don't we use podcasts? You know, literally half the globe are listening to these damn things on a regular basis. They'll listen to them. I mean, I've listened to podcasts that are over three hours long on a serious subject. And yet we in learning think it's not engaging enough. Are you kidding me? <laughs> These are real people who are listening to this stuff. So I think as a learning platform, we have a huge amount to learn from uh, from the various genres. There were all those little things in the early days, like the RSA animations, remember them? Yeah. That came up. That was one species. I like to go back to Salman Khan. His videos were great because there was no talking head. I don't particularly need a talking head when I'm learning stuff, which is why I like podcasts. Mm. 
Well, I don't need to see the person's head. You know, but like, I just listen to them. You really can't get the same amount of information. In fact, it means that I've got more cognitive bandwidth to cope with the information. So you've got a limited working memory, three things. Actually, by not seeing or not wasting bandwidth on seeing the visuals, if it's an abstract subject like philosophy or politics or this, then why do you need to see people? because you're freeing up bandwidth to reflect, digest, and get stuff into long-term memory that video doesn't... The video sort of floods your memory in a way. In a way. So yeah. I think there are all sorts of... You mentioned search as well. Search on YouTube is very different from search on Google. Yeah. Because the criteria you use for finding something is that all the data there is a, how many people have watched it, fair enough. That's like page rank. But it's also how many people crapped out one minute into the video can be very good if that happens. There's all, all these dimensions of watching video, how many, how many likes has it had and so on, that make the search very, very different from text search. So again, this relationship with knowledge and, of course, the great how-to stuff. People still use an enormous, you know, still learn a, an enormous amount of stuff by these short videos on how to fix your sink. Yes, and that's an innovation they recently uh, brought in was uh, YouTube Shorts mm-hmm. that come up and they're pushed yeah. to you. And as I'm interested, I've watched quite a lot of stuff about sound engineering on YouTube. Every day I get a notification of one of these little things and it's essentially a bit of micro-learning. It might tell you how to kind of adjust your, your bass so that you don't get these thumps on yeah. the, you know, coming through on the sound on the podcast and, and so forth. And I'm conscious of the fact we're being sound engineered today by a teacher of sound engineering and, and, and all this stuff, which is a great honour for us. So you must have come across these things in YouTube as well. But how good is video for learning, actually, Donald? I know when you look at looking yeah. at the, the theory, you have some doubts there. Yeah, I do, actually. I find it disappointing that people rely on video too much for learning because it's actually quite a poor medium, too many talking heads, and so on. I'm not a big fan of that. But actually, it's not Donald speaking here. If you actually look at the research on video for learning, it's quite light. Uh, and uh, so there's a big effect there called the transience effect. Uh, I bang on about this all the time, so, and I often illustrate this by example. You'll all have watched loads of uh, YouTube videos. Uh, sorry, you'll hear uh, lots of movies and box sets during COVID. We all did. We're all glued to Netflix and Prime. Uh, but uh, looking back, can you remember any of I can't remember a damn thing, to be honest, of most of what I watched. I can't even remember half the box sets. I, I, I couldn't name them. And I watched like 20 episodes and half of them, you know. And that's because the transience effect is really measurable. It's like in one eye, out the other, in a sense. You're watching video, but you don't have time cognitively to reflect because you're, you're being sucked into the viewing experience. So it flows through the brain without any sh- shunt into long-term memory. It's a well-established effect. But video is a good emotional medium. So if you're, you know, it makes you feel good or feel sad if you're watching a movie. So you feel as though you're learning. It makes you feel as though you're learning when you're not. And that's a great danger. People are slamming out videos expecting it to be a good learning experience. But actually that Disneyfication of learning isn't actually proven by the science. Just sometimes better making people actually do something, you know, than they're watching videos. An interesting thing is also the length of video and learning. So the biggest study came from learning videos, not YouTube videos, and they found this cliff edge. People just went off. It was all from MOOC data, learning context. About six to six and a half minutes into a video, almost everybody goes to the toilet, goes makes a cup of coffee or whatever. They all crap out about six minutes. And it's not like a gradual curve. It's like a steep fall-off. So there's a clear lesson to be learned there. Don't make your learning videos. It's not that everything should be, you know, you can make them longer if you want in some cases. But by and large, it's a good rule of thumb. So I think we've learned a lot from YouTube and the data from video that was used. Another big thing is, of course, a learning video should only be as long as it needs to be. Let's apply Occam's razor to it. Why make it longer? But you also had this flowover from YouTube into social media because social media in the early days was all purely text-based. In the early days of Facebook and Twitter, pure text. Of course, the demand for video was such that now you can put video on any of these social media. In fact, TikTok is a video social medium. You know, yeah. flipped the other way and relies wholly and utterly on video. So, you know, Chen and Hurley YouTube thing had a massive impact on the way we consume media and also I, th- I still think it's a great learning platform. And I use the transcript a lot on YouTube, you know. Uh, that transcript function... 
it's amazing, isn't it? Because when I miss something, I always see their name or something. You know, I can just cut and paste out it from doing research. So I think as a learning platform, you learn how to use it uh, if you're doing research on video. And we have many other um, interesting theorists to talk about yet who the people who crapped out at six minutes are not going to know anything about. <laughs> we hope this podcast ups your knowledge about learning. But did you know learning podcasts, that's audio training created according to evidence-based principles, is a powerful and fast-growing medium. AssembleU is an audio-first provider with a ready-built course library to help your people improve productivity, leadership, well-being, and more in their downtime. AssembleU also creates audio courses unique to your company or institution. Try it free today at assembleu.com slash greatminds, all one word. Uh, next one is yeah. this fella. Jimmy Donald Wales is the co-founder of Wikipedia. Ever heard of that? The free in online encyclopedia, um, or the sole founder, according to him. He was born in Huntsville, Alabama in 1973. Uh, Wales studied at the University of Alabama, where he met Larry Sanger, who would become his disputed co-founder. After graduating from uh, that university, Wales worked as a software engineer for several companies. In 1998, he and Sanger founded Wikipedia. It's grown to become, there's a bit of repetition here, which I'm, I'm, I'm not going to feel guilty about because it's chat GPT's fault. Wikipedia has grown to become the world's largest online encyclopedia with over 50 million articles in over 300 languages. Uh, Wells is a strong advocate for free speech, a bit of a libertarian, and open access to information. He's been praised for his work on Wikipedia, which has been credited with making knowledge more accessible to people around the world. He's also a British citizen since 2019, and a Trekkie, i.e. a fan of the science fiction TV show Star Trek. He also started a site devoted to Star Wars called Wookiepedia. Donald, in my book alone, that should guarantee him a place in history. But tell us why he qualifies as a great mind for the purposes of this series and this episode. Well, I think as learning professionals, we should be profoundly grateful for what he did there because nobody saw this coming. So if you lived in a pre-Wikipedia age, accessing those... So there used to be, when I was a kid, there used to be... Uh, usually men would knock on your door and try and sell you 30 volumes of encyclopedias, which you would pay over, you know, your mum and dad, if you, came, if you were poor, would pay, o- pay over five years or something in instalments. Overnight, that industry disappeared with something better. What was interesting about it, though, is that it was crowdsourced. You know, it didn't go out and hire writers, unlike the traditional uh, uh, encyclopedia industry. He actually encouraged people to use this wiki software to create knowledge. And it just took off. And in the early days, people tried to ban it. <laughs> it's hard to believe now that people would ban Wikipedia. My God, you know. But there was the same moral panic that you're getting over AI now, I think. You know, and I think this is because I think sometimes, sometimes you know, the people who teach or academics think they own knowledge. You know, like, we're the owners of knowledge. The people, if you want some knowledge, you have to come to me. It's not, of course, that's ridiculous. So I think, in a sense, it democratised knowledge. Mm. And actually, it's amazing the number of times when you search for something in Google, it goes straight to Wikipedia because it's a reliable source. And then the, there's some really interesting uh, academic papers in Nature comparing medical information on Wikipedia with medical information that, let, let's say, governments have paid a lot of money in building, and there's no significant difference. Mm. Very interesting. That credibility was quite hard won, wasn't it? I remember yeah. at first uh, there was a survey that showed that teachers were the biggest detractors of Wikipedia but also the biggest users. users. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and then there was yeah. a, a famous Nature study, which really turned things around in the, in the you know the, the journal Nature, uh, that compared it to Encyclopedia Britannica, and it found that they both had errors, but they weren't significantly different. That Encyclopedia Britannica was no better at all, and after that, really, it was kind of game over. I think there's an interesting epistemological point here, which is when people are discussing, I quite find this often with AI, they're going, oh, but it made a mistake there, you know. But this is generally true of knowledge. The idea that there is knowledge and there is an absolute set of knowledge that is truth and it wasn't encyclopedias is clearly nonsense because there's peripheral knowledge, you know, that's matter of opinion, you know, and that's, that's the nature of knowledge itself. There is this expectation in learning and in schools and universities that there is some sort of absolute body of truth that's inviolable. Not even science says that. In fact, science says the very opposite, that it's a moving feast. 
And so you got a, a lot of early criticism of stuff, you know, on the Britney Spears page or something. Who cares, you know, <laughs> because it's a matter of opinion. <laughs> and the great thing about Wikipedia, unlike a traditional source, is underneath it you have the edit histories and discussions. So it recognised that there was, on the outside, a knowledge of vague stuff. I thought that was a wonderful breakthrough because it recognised the truth of epistemology, that not everything is certain and truthful. Mm. And that was pretty honest. Jimmy Wills used to talk about, I've met Jimmy Wills, he used to talk about that a lot, about people forget that, that this was a big move forward in recognising that not everything needs to be subject to the litmus test of absolute truth. Because mm. we have opinion. I'm going to get a little bell for the show and we'll ring it every time you drop one of those massive names. Like I had lunch with Dorita, and, you know, I, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let you off. What's so special about Wikipedia, though, Donald? Why is it different from the paper encyclopedias that went before it? You know, we're not just talking about accuracy now, but how does it surpass it as a, a learning tool? Well, again, I'm going to use that boring phrase again, the relationship with knowledge. So what matters is search for Wikipedia. It's not Wikipedia itself. The fact that... I'd, I was involved in quite a big research project in Wikipedia. You know, why do people use it so much? It actually came down to something quite surprising. When you go to Wikipedia, it's co it comes back at you with a consistent page. So it's always got that little summary at the top and then a little menu beneath it, and it goes on right to references at the bottom. People really love consistency on interfaces. And when you ask people why they use Wikipedia, they often quote that as its great virtue. You know, and there's a thing called DBpedia, which is the educational a sort of cleaned version of Wikipedia. I mean, I've used it to build e-learning programs and so on using AI. That is interesting because you can go in and pluck stuff out because it's a consistent format. You can take the first paragraph and that by and large most satisfies most people's needs. You know, what is blockchain? Well, the first paragraph will give you probably, you know, 90% of people, the first paragraph will be fine. For more technical people, maybe they want to dig deeper. And it's got that dig deeper structure with all the references at the bottom. So that's one of its big success stories. And, you know, your relationship with it is one of a consistent response when you search for something. Mm. I think that was it. Because it's weird, you know, we, we spend huge sums of money on interface design and UX designers. But look at the UX on Google, a little box in the middle of the screen. Wikipedia, it looks like something out of the 1990s because it is something out of the 1990s. <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, they're all pretty primitive, aren't they? They don't, they don't have little cartoons and animations and stuff because actually that's a bit tiresome after a while. And I think we in the learning game or the e-learning game forget that, you know, that actually people just want, sometimes want it a bit straight. We, we imagine that they want lots of sort of, you know, uh, you know cherries on the cake. But it's actual fact people just want to get on and get stuff quickly. And I, I, think, uh, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, it does a great job as well of, of that rather difficult thing of, I, I forget the technical term for it, but if, if you have two people with the same name, this one's the cricketer, that mm. one's the yeah. nuclear physicist, and Indeed. so on. And there's a case in point with um, our next uh, theorist, <laughs> if you can let me use that as a link to move on. And here he is, uh, Sal Khan. Now, he's, he's called Sal Khan on Wikipedia, uh, which he probably did himself to differentiate himself from Salman Khan, who's an Indian actor, of a very famous Indian actor of a previous generation. But this one, Salman Amin Khan, is an American educator and the founder of Khan Academy, which Donald talked a bit about before, a free online non-profit educational platform and an organisation with which he's produced over 6,500 video learning lessons teaching a wide spectrum of academic subjects originally focusing on mathematics and science which i suppose because it's maths I, I wasn't initially very interested in i know you are donald he's also the founder of khan lab school a bricks and mortar private school in california uh, and a number of other innovations uh, including flipped learning i think that was the thing that he publicized as well born in louisiana his physician father hailed originally from bangladesh uh, his mother from india Sal got a BSc and MSc from MIT and an MBA from Harvard. Uh, so well-educated, but um, necessary from a, not necessarily from a learning background. For six years, he worked as a hedge fund analyst. And it was during that time that the story you told earlier, he started tutoring his cousin in maths, other family members piled in, moved the lessons to YouTube, that blew up, and he ended up quitting his day job to found the uh, Khan Academy. Donald, this became one of the world's most famous educational site. What was innovative about his teaching methods? And 
yeah. his other innovations. Well, he's a big hero, man, because it's interesting if you, if, when he's asked about his time at MIT and some of these bigger universities, he never attended any lectures. It was quite an astonishing fact. But he had a very good rationale. He would attend the first lecture just to get the lie of the land, what was the curriculum, because he thought it was too slow for him. And uh, he didn't attend lectures because he thought it was a, just an appalling method of learning anything. I think he has a point. <laughs> I think he genuinely has a point. Why, he, uh, that actually influenced him later on because he had all these recorded YouTube videos for kids on maths. No talking head, remember that? Just the maths. And he used colour highlighting. There's a, a very good rack of papers by a guy called Richard Mayer that shows that when you're teaching something like maths or anything, on a screen especially, the highlighting and signalling matters a lot in learning cognitively. Mm. And he was a master at that. Not only that, uh, he was actually, he's, he's a big critic of the educational system. His writing on schooling and stuff is really interesting. He believes in mixed age for young kids at school. He doesn't believe that you should put people in a narrow strata because they get obsessed by their peer groups. And, you know, that, that he thinks that's a cognitive distortion in the learning process. And I happen to agree with him on that. And he also thinks that it should be based on time to competence. In other words, you know, the higher education schooling is obsessed by time. You have to finish by that day, that year. If you fail that exam, you have to wait a year to resit it. These huge, massive inefficiencies in education he's a critic of. So along he comes, jumps on the internet, creates Khan Academy, and it is a huge success. Not only that, he took it into schools because he recognised that, especially for younger children, you need teachers to provide some of the motivation factors motivational factors. Right. Is this where flipped classroom comes in? Yeah, the flip, that's right. Yeah. When he was using it in schools, he was using it so the teachers would do, the teachers would change their role. They would get the kids to learn all the maths online. It's almost your homework becomes your lessons. And then the teachers were free up to solve the problems that the kids were having in the maths, the flipped classroom. Mm. And that's great because that, uh, you know, then does attainment rise over a cohort or a group? Yes, it does. So, I, and then still people still don't do it, actually. Hardly anybody does the flipped classroom in practice, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that it does work. So if you jump now to his involvement with uh, uh, chat, GPT and so yeah. on, I mean, watch, watch what this guy is doing and just watch this one video. It's about 20 minutes long yeah. on the chat GPT site and it will blow your mind what he's doing with this technology. You know, he's got chat GTP so the kids can go back and speak to Isaac Newton or Hieronymus Bosch or whatever. You know, you can actually go back and speak and have dialogue with historic figures. Because remember, chat GTP has captured everything that those people wrote. You can speak to Plato because it's got all the works of Plato in there and all the commentaries on Plato. So it will sound like Plato and we'll come back with platonic type things when you, when you speak to Plato. Interestingly, he included fictional characters in there as well. So you can go back and speak to Hamlet. Let's suppose you're studying the play Hamlet. You can go speak speak to Hamlet. <laughs> it's been mind-blowingly interesting. Uh, and then on top of that, all the classic maths and history, it's also got a debating function. You can debate with chat GPT. And, you know, I, I, think, I think Salman Khan, with the help of Bill Gates' money and OpenAI, will create this thing I'm talking about, this sort of universal teacher. Because he moved beyond mathematics into science subjects and then English and literature and art and so on and the big liberal arts type curriculum. So I think he, he will be a significant figure in the future in terms of this AI stuff. Yeah, isn't it interesting that the, that the people you're talking about, like Khan and so on, um, are also beginning to pioneer in AI? Yeah. They, you know, we've heard about them for a while, but they're, they're kind of still on that train of innovation and yeah. the next, they'll, they'll be there for the next generation. Okay. So let's move on to the next one of those figures. Louis von Arne, born 1978, they're all kind of born around the 70s, these people, aren't they? Louis von Arne is a German Guatemalan entrepreneur. There's also an amazing diaspora here. Mm. That, you know, the, the, the US tech industry has been the beneficiary of, yeah. of, of so much uh, immigration here. Um, and a consulting professor in the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon, known as one of the pioneers of crowdsourcing, interestingly, founder of the company Recapture, which was sold to Google in 2009. Is that where you have to um, identify the boxes with cars and things? Yeah, it drives yeah. me out the wall. And the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo, most importantly, the language learning app. When he was eight, his mother brought him a Commodore 64 computer. 
remember those, Gen Xers, beginning his fascination with technology and computer science. Later, when applying to colleges in the United States, he had to spend more than $1,200 to fly to neighbouring El Salvador to take a TOEFL test, uh, English as a foreign language, and the experience left him traumatised with a negative impression of extractive testing. Um, and right for disruption, hence Duolingo. Donald, there are a lot of learning apps you could have focused on, and language learning in general is, is, is a kind of really interesting subgenre of its own within learning theory. But what, what's so special about Duolingo? Why is it so standout? Well, his aim was to make education as free or cheap as possible globally on language learning initially, and boy, did he succeed in that. You know, there's no doubt that the sheer number of people who are learning... Uh, the many, many languages that are available and are proof of that. Let's say that's empirically true, that it's been a huge success. I think there are a couple of things. One, he proved the business case for it. So Captcha was really interesting. I don't know if you know the history of Captcha, but you know when you typed in those words, it was actually being used as a form of typing in or digitising books. So they were all words from books. So it, it, the byproduct of the Captcha system was the digitization of text. Now, when he had Duolingo, he thought initially the financial model would be translation of text. It didn't quite work. But Duolingo has, I don't know if many people have used Duolingo, but Duolingo has a freemium service. So most of it's free. But if you want to get rid of the, ad, uh, the, the ads and have the super duper version, you pay a small sum. And it is a small monthly sum. Mm. But the great, I'm a, a huge, huge fan of Louis Van Anne because he takes learning science seriously. This guy is really an AI guy by background, but has really studied the learning science. So if you go into Duolingo now, uh, we did a big research project myself and Callum on looking at spaced practice. Spaced practice is probably the most significant piece of learning theory around language learning. You don't learn a damn thing, really on anything without doing it repeated times, which is why a lecture is a stupid way. Imagine le learning from lectures is stupid. You actually take notes in lectures and go and learn the real stuff back in the library. And you, you know, that's what we all did. But in language learning, it's critical because the forgetting curve, Ebbinghaus, 1885, was that 140 years ago, showed us, and it's been replicated, so it's true, it's pure science, that we forget almost everything we try and learn. And this is particularly true in languages because it's very alien. You know, a new language has very alien words and grammar. So you forget Especially it much Especially Dutch, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I can prove that because my son, who did a degree in Maastricht in this great land, doesn't speak a word of Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but the interesting thing about Duolingo was... When we did the research, they published their research papers. So around space practice, there's a thing called uh, uh, the Leitner box system. You know, it's, a, it's a, an algorithm for working out how, how often you need to repeat a thing to get it into long-term memory. And everybody used the Leitner box system, three or five boxes. You, you trickle through it until you get everything in the top box. Duolingo used a thing called the half-life algorithm. So they work out how long, for you as an individual, you're looking at these words in Spanish or Russian, it knows for every single word how long it will take for you to forget that word. The very, and obviously he focuses not on learning, but on forgetting. Yeah. It's an absolute breakthrough, but he's right, because actually the problem is forgetting, not learning. So the half-life, what's out the half-life, and then all the notifications and practice and presentation of the language learning is based on that data, the half-life algorithm. So the space practice, how often you do something, it seems a bit repetitive when you do Duolingo, but actually that's its strength. People, people are very bad at reflecting on how, what's best for them in learning. So when you ask students, oh, you know, what's your best learning? Oh, you're underlining and highlighting my notes. They don't learn a damn thing by un underlining and highlighting notes. It's a very poor strategy. But they think they learn from that. People think they learn by watching video. They don't really. And the same is true in language learning. So he has built this amazing system, A-B testing it, fine-tuning it, so that people really do their best. And remember, they're not in a classroom here. There's no teacher. And yet there are literally hundreds of millions of people who have been through that process and have some proficiency. I have two friends, one ger doing German and another one doing Dutch. My friend Sinjin, he has a Dutch partner, lives in England, didn't speak a word of Dutch. He's only, he did a full year, 365 sprint, every single day 
I mean, you, I wish he was here to, to describe this uh, to you because he can now, when he comes back to the Netherlands with his partners, he now for the first time, and he said to me, for the first time I understand the jokes they're making about me around the table. So that was quite <laughs> nice. He said, you know, he feels part of the family because he can join in and understand things. And I think his family appreciate that he's made the effort as well. And so it could be a big thing in somebody's life, you know, learning the, the, the language of your partner, for example. And he did that all for free on Duolingo. And I have another friend who's doing it in German as well. And uh, again, his conversational German is pretty good, just on the back of Duolingo. Because people, if, if, if you're, if you, I mean, I'm from Scotland, but if you can't say, obviously you come from England, you come on to continental Europe and people just speak English to you. So it's very difficult to learn a foreign language for kids, you know, because they don't have much chance of immersion. Because you guys are so damn good at languages. <laughs> but... Uh, I think I, I like Louis Van Rand because he's worked at the he builds the science of learning into the product and constantly tries to improve that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think we've been talking about people the internet as knowledge, where people build the AI into the uh, into the product. Yeah. Um, I think we are arriving a point when we actually need to talk about AI, pure and simple. <laughs> yeah. uh, and this guy, Sam Altman, born in 1985. Oh, so young. Samuel Harris Altman is an American entrepreneur, investor, a very serious investor mm -hmm. in tech companies, and a programmer. He was the co-founder of Looped, which was an extremely expensive disaster, and is the current CEO of OpenAI as of 2019, which is, as we all know, a massive success. Additionally, he co-founded WorldCoin, served as the president of Y Combinator, and was CEO of Reddit for eight days, which is kind of Liz Truss' um, standards of occupancy in <laughs> a role. He grew up in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. There's any Americans here. His mother is a dermatologist. He received his first computer at the age of eight, so two years later than uh, who was the earlier one. I can't remember. At six. He studied computer science at Stanford University until, joining, if you know the words, dropped out <laughs> to go off and change the world. Recently, Altman was named one of the 100 most influential people on the planet by Time magazine. And with the huge and sudden fame of ChatGPT this year, it's probably no exaggeration to say that he's probably about the most important single person in tech at the moment. Important in tech, Donald, but is he important for learning? Well, yes, Sam Altman is a really fascinating character. And the evidence for his interest in learning comes from the launch of ChatGTP. If you looked at the launch of ChatGPT4, the two big partnerships were with Khan Academy and Duolingo. Interesting. Not banks, but those two. And uh, the two main videos that you show on the, on the website then are two learning applications. Now, that's quite interesting. But if you dig into Sam uh, Altman's past. He actually is a sort of left-leaning American, unlike, let's say, Elon Musk, who seems to be swinging ever to the right, for example. And he's a big believer. So he's, fun, he's given a lot of money. He's a very rich man at a very young age. He's given a lot of money to the Democratic Party. He actually thought about running for governor of California. Yeah. So he's a big Democrat in the US. And he, uh, uh, you know, when you hear him speak, if you look at interviews with Joe Rogan and so on, he talks quite passionately about solving the problems of homelessness and poverty. He's a big believer in uh, BUI, the basic universal UBI, income. Yeah. In other words, you know, if all these tech companies scrape up all the cash from everybody, that's unfair. Surely they should be giving it back. He believes that the distribution method should be basic, a basic income for, for everybody. And he talks, he's funded millions of res in research in this area as well. So he's got a yeah. he's a guy with a heart, you know, he's not just an abstract programmer business guy. So I, I, that's why I think he's really significant. And of course, what he's done is change our relationship to knowledge. We no longer see knowledge as something we go out and grab through search or watch a YouTube video or retrieve. Actually, we interact with knowledge through this technology. You know, this huge mother load of cultural knowledge, we actually talk to it and it talks back to us. This is new. So I, call it, I call it pedagogy with the AI in the middle. You know, it's, this is a new way of seeing knowledge. You're talking to it, you're conversing with it. And of course, it's, it's not got any consciousness or understanding, but it feels like a very human experience because we have evolved to speak and chat, going back to our oral tradition that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. So... I think he, Brockman, Elon Musk put the billion in, you know, all the original investors 
thought that OpenAI would be, in fact, its main aim. Remember, this is a not-for-profit. OpenAI is still a not-for-profit with, with a thing called a cap not-for-profit sitting beneath it so some of the people can be reasonably well rewarded. But the not-for-profit still runs the show. And you might think, oh, Microsoft own it, but not really because they're free to do deals with anybody else. I've never, Microsoft put $1 billion into ChatGTP and they still kept the rights to vote with other people. I've never seen that. and I'm an investor. I've never seen that before. Absolutely astonishing. And Sam Altman is a brilliant business guy as well as a guy with a heart. So OpenAI, I think they're on a real mission to democratise education and healthcare. I think that's what they're really after here. They want to make healthcare as cheap as chips, as they say, as cheap as peanuts. And I think that's an admirable thing, uh, especially in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world where people literally die because they have no access to medical care or even doctors. But this is also true of education. I think we in the West have built an almost hideous system which is based on scarcity, you know? In other words, we're going to keep it really expensive. You're going to have to pass loads of exams to get into our institution so you can get that lovely badge that will get you a job. <laughs> it's 80% signalling, read Kaplan. Because you, you've forgotten most of it. If you, any of us who have been to college, we've forgotten most of what we learned there anyway. But we have that signal. We have a big post-it note in our heads when I went to university, I'm smart, give me a job. And I think that system's now morally bankrupt. I genuinely think it's a good thing, I mean, going to university, but, but that, the graduate class is starting to look down on everybody else and ignore them and not pay them any money. They're all on minimum wage, serving the graduate class. The graduate class has invented politics. I don't think that's been a good thing. <laughs> you know, I, I don't care which country you're in, but I, I haven't seen a rise in political values because they're all graduates all of a sudden, certainly in my country, or America, or mainland Europe. So I think uh, the democratisation of education is long overdue, especially, you know, the people who are most in need of education are furthest from it. It's an absolute condemnation of the way we see education in our society, that the people most in need, it, need of it get less of it. They get abandoned quite early. Vocational learning is almost ignored in my country. It was demolished. All the money goes to the university system. The vocational system was wiped off the board. And we wonder why the world is falling apart. <laughs> you know? On that note, yes. We've run over time, but we want to make um, a bit of time for, for, for questions. But I don't think we can leave Altman entirely without talking about the fear. <laughs> the fear of AI. I mean, and he talks very interestingly about this. Uh, and, and perhaps we should talk about the letter. The letter suggesting we should maybe slow down a bit with LLMs until we've worked out how to counter the potential dangers. We're used to this sort of warning coming from media pundits and assorted technophobes. But this letter carried the signatures of tech royalty figures like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak. Um, Donald, how worried should we be? Or is it just these people saying, slow down until we can catch up with you with our own startups? Yeah. Well, I mean, Elon Musk, <laughs> who cares? You know, like, really, he's gone a bit crazy into it. Everybody even knows that and so on. But the interesting thing about the letter, just as an aside, the letter, actually, the main protagonist behind the letter is a guy called Tegmark, who's actually a serious AI figure. And he runs a thing called the Future of Life Institute, which is a bit, which gets all its funding around ethics and AI. So you've always got to look for the agenda of the people who are signing these letters, you know? It's mostly academics, and they have nothing to lose, you know, because they're not going to lose any money, and it's a lot of virtue signaling, I think, on that front. But the truth of the matter is that letter's a bit weird, and in fact, some of the people have withdrawn their names from the letter. When the letter was published, it had some names of people who were never asked. That's how hokey and, like, amateurish this was. But the interesting thing about Sam Altman, I really highly recommend his his interview with Lex Fridman, who is an awesome AI guy, because they talk about this in a huge amount of yeah. detail. Sam Altman is obsessed by alignment, and I was aligning these AI tools with human values and ethics. Right. And OpenAI are spending huge sums of money on achieving that. Now, it's interesting. There is no single alignment because there is no single set of human values. Mm. You know, the human... I've just come back from Singapore and China and doing all this... Believe me, the values in there and China are very different from Europe. Uh, and who are we to say, oh, no, we're going to, we're the EU. We're only 5%, 5 5.7% of the world's population. But you're going to have our values. <laughs> but that's how we speak sometimes in Europe. You know, it's, it's absurd. The truth of the matter is we should be aligning differently for different societies according to, obviously, the differences that, that, that exist. Sam Altman's 
sensitive to that. Mm. And OpenAI are sensitive to that, which I think is a, an enlightened view of the world, a diversity of values. There is no one set of human values, which makes the problem tricky, but not insolvable. Mm. And I think the catastrophists like Musk and the people who signed the letter are just plain wrong. I don't think there is any real danger of this stuff uh, imposing harm without us being able to control it. So the question is, can if we see it causing harm, can we stop it? And I think we can. There are two ways of doing that, and that's just designing or engineering the problem away or using regulation. Mm. And the regulation is coming along. You shouldn't rush regulation. A good example of rushed regulation is GDPR. And I don't like GDPR, I think it was I think it was rushed. For example, every time you go on to, every time I'm on my laptop, a consent form comes up. I I click, yeah, all cookies automatically. I don't care. I have never, ever read a consent form. Neither have any of you. And that was because the EU insisted on it happening through GDPR. Millions, hundreds of millions of hours of wasted productivity by human beings because some idiot decided that that was the solution to the problem. It wasn't the solution to the problem. It was the worst possible outcome for all of us. And that's the danger with AI regulation, that if we rush it, we start doing silly things. I'm going to rush some regulation now and say that we have to make a little bit of time for people to ask questions. So if you've got questions, can we ask you to step up to the mic and, uh, or, or will our roving mic person come? Has anybody got any questions? Yep, one down here. Um, Donald, um, I've been experimenting with uh, ChatGPT and um, I found out that it doesn't have uh, a lot of knowledge about specific things like uh, uh, custom-made software. Do you think that we as uh, L&D people have a role in training JetGPT or other uh, GPT software? Yes, that's right. So it also, I always say this whenever I say, uh, if, if you've been using, it depends what version, have you been using three or four? Uh, three. Three, now. Okay. That's significant for me because, you know, going back to our conversation earlier, it's a bit, if you're using three, it's a bit like using Wikipedia from 2003 because the leap from three to four was phenomenal in terms of the number of parameters and its depth and breadth of knowledge. So, you know, that it, it's worth trying four out just as a comparison. Although, use three, it's, it's, it's good, but I always advise that because it came on so quickly. It doubled in accuracy, basically, from about 40-odd percent to 82%, so it, it's significantly better. You asked an interesting question there, though, because the, having worked with these sort of models, you can actually customise it to take, let's say, your organization's mother load of knowledge and apply apply these same AI techniques so that it includes that in the chat GTP deliverable. And this is ideal for training, of course, because that's exactly what you would want to do yes, in customized course, software. Yeah. So that's you can do that now. In fact, we, we're involved in projects where that is happening. So let me give a really personal example of that. I've been blogging for 15 years. I've written four books, blah, blah, blah. I've got all this text. And I'm getting it all together into one database. So, and I, and I, I will put a little sort of chat uh, GPT software on top of it so that when I go to conferences, you don't have to do the microphone thing. You can just go and type a question and then Donald <laughs> will give you an answer. You know, Well, that's pretty good because I've forgotten half of the stuff I've written. You know, and I probably mumble through half of it anyway. So why not? That's the sort of advantage. You know, I'm giving that as a microcosm type example of what you can do in your company. You can have company-specific information that you train the model on, and therefore, it, and it will chat back to you about your stuff. So, th three to four, yes, this is coming. It can be, you'll see a lot of this. Already Bloomberg have, you know, you see it in the marketplace already. Bloomberg have uh, launched a chat GPT service that's all about finance. That's just because they've trained the model from financial data. So, you can do that if you're a pharmaceutical company or a bank or whatever. Okay. We'll get a subscription uh, today. On, uh, on it's twenty dollars, so it's not going to break the bank. No, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. You're all obviously very thirsty people. I need to get off and get a cup of tea or whatever. Uh, and we have overrun run our time. So I'd like to thank you all for for attending, and I'd like to thank Donald for um, you, yet again uh, enlightening us uh, with um, more about great minds on learning. And please all go to the website, subscribe, and. 
listen to us all forever after. That was a very English thing you ended on there. You've got to go off and have a cup of tea. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. And a bougie mccoogee or whatever it is. That you <laughs> Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. That's all for this season, but we'll be back in the autumn. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Helmer. Sound edit is by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project and the people at Next Learning Conference for their help in recording this episode. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack. 